Ali Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Laura Morrow, author, PhD student and former wrestling journalist. And I believe that doesn't mean that Laura used to wrestle and was a journalist. I, I wish, wish, I wish that were true. <laughs> <laughs> and we are recording live at FantasyCon. Yay! <laughs> Let's make it sound like there's loads of people in the room. <laughs> Hello. Hello. What have you been up to? So much. So, so much. <laughs> um, yeah, my day job is writing video games. So, That's yeah, I've been doing awesome. that. Yeah, and then PhD, obviously, on the side. And then I also translate manga. I do I do a lot of things. And then writing as well. So You're a busy, <laughs> busy person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, we're here today to talk about two books. The first one of which is Moominland Midwinter. And that was your choice. It was, it was. Can you summarise the plot for us? Yeah, so Moomin, obviously the Moomins, if you're familiar with the Moomins, they're kind of uh, these kind of like hippo-like creatures that live in a Finnish uh, fantasy world. Um, And they are usually summer creatures and they usually hibernate through the winter. But one winter, Moomin, or Moomin Troll as he's known in the book, wakes up through the winter and has to endure the entire winter. So he has to live through winter for the first time. And he meets the night creatures and the creatures of winter um, and comes to understand what it's like to live through that kind of time. Mm. Um, and I think learns an awful lot about himself, but also, as is the case with all the Moomin books, learns a lot about love. Yeah, that, that, is, that is definitely a, a trope throughout the Moomin books. And uh, we'll come on in a little bit about some of those, those points. I'm just saying that for me. Because yeah. I'm on my second glass of wine. So it's I. <laughs> slightly, probably uh, erroneously, I had a second glass of wine. When did you first read this book? Can you remember? I can. I was five. My mum used to work as a teaching assistant in a primary school. So during summer holidays, we often used to go into primary school with her. And the school library was just, oh, it was so much better than our school library. And they had Moomin Lamb Midwinter. And I remember picking it up at five years old and not really understanding it fully but coming back to it multiple times over the next few years and just being absolutely astounded and blown away by this world that wasn't like mine um just fell in love with it completely that amazes me pretty much mostly because I couldn't read until I was seven so I'm just amazed that you could (laughs) read the words in this book at the age of five but yeah it I I felt I think I feel very much the same it is it's it's recognisably not some kind of, you know, place in space. Like, it's not an, another planet. But it's so different mm-hmm. from, from anything that I'd experienced as a yeah, child. Yeah. The Moomins were just magical in so many ways and continue to be so, yeah. actually. Now, now I'm an adult. They, they are, as you say, they're like hippo-like sort of troll creatures, do you think of this as a post-human book? I feel like it's contingent with humanity in a lot of ways. I mean, and I've only really kind of realised that as I'm older. Mm. Um, I've got a lot of friends who live in Finland and they, you know, the belief in kind of trolls and things like that mm. is very contemporary. You know, I, I had a Finnish house guest recently and my cat was meowing at the attic. And she said, oh, you've got a house elf. 
And I said, I've got a what? Um, <laughs> and um, she said, yeah, house elf. You know, they, they live in your house and they, they, they help you with various chores. That's what your cat's meowing at. So I thought, and she was very sincere. You know, there was one of the mocking things. She very sincerely believed there was a house elf. So ever since then, I've put a little bit of candy in the attic for the house elf. You know, it's just, it's... I think it live, they live alongside humans. It's just they live so far away mm. that they've never experienced us, and for the better. Yeah, and I mean they they live in forests, mm. don't they? So they they're not they're not living near. Although, too ticky. Mm. Do you think too ticky is human? I don't know if you know about the story of too ticky, but um, Tova Janssen, the author, um, was uh, in a same-sex relationship for most of her life with a woman called Tuliki Pietela. I'm sorry if I said that wrong to any Finnish people. Um, and Tutiki was based on Tuliki. And um, so I think her soul is human, even if she is not. Perhaps she's still a troll-type creature, but I think she has a human heart, very much so. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I do think of Tutiki as being part human, mm, mm. but that's in my own head canon. I don't know if that's actually real. Um, but, yeah. Um, and, the, the, of course, the, the recent, I mean... Not that recent. I'm old. I don't. I think of things like quite a long time ago as being recent, but the um, the Moomins in the Riviera mm, book, mm. where where the Moomins do encounter humans and are quite often baffled by them and by the way that that life works if you're a human and mm. they don't understand it, and in particular they don't understand the um, the duplicity. The duplicity yes. of humans, yes. I think, is is a rather delightful. There's a real straightforwardness about moomins, and then all the kind of the creatures that live alongside them are kind of guilelessness, which is really charming. They are exactly what you expect them to be, and that's why characters like Little Mai, for example, mm. is quite. Uh, you know, she's she's quite pivotal in a lot of it because she isn't honest, and that's not a thing that exists readily in the moomin universe. I think. No, she she's yeah. she is completely. Um, as she appears, yeah. there's no guile to yeah. Little Mai at all. And, you know, she she doesn't, she she has no truck with kind of appeasing anybody. Yeah. And I just, I I think if it was, when I was younger, I really wanted to be um, Little Mai, or I thought of myself as Little Mai. And now I'm older, I sort of aspire to be Moon and Mama. Yeah, yeah, I aspire yeah. to be as practical and competent as, as Moom and Mama, but I'm not. I know I'm really the snort maiden. I know that. When I was a kid, the, uh, the Moomin cartoons, the Japanese ones yes. that translate to English, they just they were quite popular on TV, and I got called Little Mai at school because I was bossy. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I like that. I wear that as a badge of pride. I think Little Mai is something to aspire to, actually. I, I think so. And I think a, a lot of... I mean, I, I know I'm probably retconning this from what I know about Toby Janssen's life and who she was as a person, but... I think that her her willingness to just be herself and not kind of pander to yeah. um, you know if, if uh, audience um, have you read a biography of Tovi Janssen? Yeah. yeah the film. Oh, I the recommend film is the film is yeah. wonderful. The book is yeah, it is amazing, mm. and I I really recommend it. And she was very much beyond her era, wasn't she? Oh, I think. so yeah. much in her in her creative self. As as well as in her kind of lived mm. self, um, those of you who've been to Helsinki, you may have seen the really really ooh, icky statue of her. 
um, which is near the harbour, and it is quite something. But that was her di- her dad, yes. who was an artist as well, and but an artist who he was very much like Moomin Popper, I think. He was. He it's was like the world is. You know, the world will end if my if my aspirations are not met. The world will end. He was kind of the opposite of a nurturing father, wasn't he? He was totally. no, he nurtured his own creations and very little else. Yeah, and, and he saw Tobias as, as his own yeah, creation, exactly. and it must have taken an enormous strength of character for her to to kind of break away yeah. from all of that. But yeah, I mean, I've I've read Moomin books. I don't actually remember the first time I read any of the Moomin books mm. because they, which is unusual for me, because I have. Because I learned to read so late, I have very, very strong memories of reading as a child, which is part of the reason why I started this podcast. But I don't remember the first time I read um, the movement books. And I think that might be because I heard them so young. I think someone read them to me, and I don't remember who it was. It wasn't my dad. But I do remember uh, hearing them as a very young child. And of course now, because they're it was an amazing thing that in the 1950s, um, a book about little trolls from from Finland really kind of captured British audiences. Mm. But they've kept going and they've kept selling. I don't think any of the novels have ever been out of no, print. They have not. You're right. Yeah. Although the I think the cartoon strips mm. have been translated quite recently. And they are, as books, they're very beautiful objects. Mm. I really, really like them. We have quite a lot of them in, in our house. So um, the, my choice was by one of my favourite contemporary authors, who's Kate de Camillo. And Kate de Camillo has had a lot of books made into films and made into... So The Tale of Despero... If you don't know Kate DiCamillo, The Tale of Despero, the, which is an animated book, was based off of her book. Um, all, my favourite book by her, I've already read on a podcast, which is with John Coxon, and that's Flora and Ulysses. And that's just the most delightful thing. But um, this is, I chose this because I think the melancholy feeling mm-hmm. of this book yeah. works quite well with um, movements because something that Tove Jonsson never, never did was talk down to children. Yes, absolutely. And the danger of winter is very present in this book. Yes, there's joy and excitement of sort of sledging and all the rest of it, with little Mai going down the big hill, but there's also the Groak, mm. and the Groak is not a malicious no, character. No. The Groke just brings the cold, and that's just a nat- part of natural life. And there's a point where they f- find a dead squirrel, and the squirrel's just dead. And that's the way it is. Squirrel dies because it's really cold. And there's no kind of glossing over it. It's just a thing that happened. So this book is called The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. And I'll read the blurb. Once, in a house in Egypt Street... There lived a China rabbit named Edward Tulane. The rabbit was very pleased with himself, and for good reason. He was owned by a girl named Abilene, who treated him with the utmost care and adored him completely. And then, one day, he was lost. Climax. There's no ellipses, it's just like a full stop. That's, that's it, that's the end of the blurb. 
There is no going further. How did you feel about this book? Did you enjoy it? I really did. I really, really liked it. And I think you're spot on when you say it's got the same element of melancholy, but also the kind of melancholy of love. Because mm. I think love is the thread that brings both of these books together, isn't it? Like mm. the idea of love and also what it's like when love isn't there. Because, mm. you know, in Moomin Land Midwinter, Moomin Troll wakes up and he's alone. Mm. And all the people around him, there are some familiar people, and little Mai obviously is familiar to him, but mostly they're strangers and they're strangers who behave in a strange way. Mm. And he's used to having Moomin Mama there. And Moomin Mother, as you know, you've read the books, and Moomin Mother, Mama is this kind of constant thread of love mm. all the way through. And she's not there. And he has to kind of navigate this weird world of darkness and cold without that love. And this is something really similar to, because in the story, obviously, you know, as the blood makes clear, Edward gets lost. And he passes through the hands of many people and some of those people love him and some of those people don't. And the moments where he's not loved are the ones that really stand out, are the ones that you realise what's missing. It's the absence of love that I think that mm. makes the story really strong. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I mean, again, it's a, non, it's a non-human protagonist because he's a China rabbit. But here's a China rabbit with a certain amount of sentience but with very limited experience. So at the beginning of the book, he is the centre of Abilene's world. And when Abilene isn't there, and he's not the centre of the mm. world anymore, it's really, really difficult for him. There's a passage, if you allow me just to read it. Please do. Because I, I bookmarked it, because it really, oh, it really stood out to me. And this is where he's in a field as a scarecrow, and he gets lost, and he's being used as a scarecrow. And it says, finally, the sun set and the birds flew away. Edward hung by his ears and looked up at the night sky. He saw the stars. But for the first time in his life, he looked at them and felt no comfort. Instead, he felt mocked. You are down there alone, the stars seemed to say to him. And we are up here in our constellations together. I've been loved, Edward told the stars. So, said the stars, what difference does that make when you're all alone now? Edward could think of no answer to that question. Mm. And that just really stood out to me. There's something kind of really cruel, but also really honest. And when you said Tovit never spoke down to children, I felt the same way about mm. that passage. The idea of like, so that you were loved, but you're not now. What yes. difference does that make? The kind of stark realisation that what was isn't what is. Which, you know, kids don't have that kind of object permanence, do they? It's kind of a, a play to that sense of, oh, you know, a, a bit of a system shock, but like a necessary one in a way. Yeah, and, and he's actually loved despite himself mm -hmm. at the beginning of the book because he is utterly arrogant <laughs> because he, he lives with this sort of beautiful house with a very well-to-do family, Abilene's very well-to-do little girl. He's adored by Abilene. He has his own bed. He has a wardrobe of bespoke clothes. He's got a little pocket watch. And he thinks really well of himself. But, yeah, once, once all of those trappings are taken mm -hmm. away from him, he's just a China rabbit. Yeah. And, and some quite awful things happen They're taken to him. piece by piece, aren't they? Yeah. It's, sort of, it's this really clever kind of, you know, it begins with the pocket watch being hoovered away from him, which he thinks is a disgrace. You know, it's a terrible thing that his pocket watch gets taken away. But he gets put on a shelf with the other toys, which, oh, what indignity that is. And he doesn't realise how much indignity he then continues. But there's something really interesting in the way. There's the bit in the middle where is it, I can't remember her name, Sue, um, Ruth. Uh, there's a young girl who's mm. dying, which is a oh, heartbreaking part of the story. And he gets given to this little girl who's dying. And he's her last companion throughout her life. 
And he, I think that's the turning point in the story, isn't it, where he realises that something something's a bigger than him. Mm. That's also a thing that happens in Moomin, Lime of Winter, yes. where Moomin realises that the world is bigger than he is. And that's quite a shocking revelation for somebody, because Moomin is actually is a lovely character, but he is quite self-absorbed as well. He is. He belongs, oh, sorry, he belongs in his own bubble, where everything that's important to him is the things that are relevant to him. And he realises that actually those things don't matter in the winter. Those things are irrelevant in the winter, and that's a real system shock for Moomin. I, I agree with you. Um, I think that another, another kind of parallel between the two bits, both have an omniscient narrator. Mm. But I think that the narrator in um, in Moominland Midwinter is, she, Tovis stays out mm. of the story, yes. whereas Kate de Camillo is quite present yeah. in the story. Um, how do you feel that affects the narrative? There's a really lovely sense of, yeah, with, with, with the way Tova tells stories, um, it's folklore, isn't it? I think mm. a lot of it. It's just recounting a thing that happened. Mm. And you are to make what you make of it, which is very much, you know, from what I know of Finnish folklore as an adult, is very much the way those stories are told. You know, this is a thing that happened, and you are welcome to extrapolate meaning from that. Whereas Kate, I think, is... She's... It suits Edward as a character because, of course, he's loved, isn't he? He's mm. a rabbit. He's, he's an object to be cared for. Mm. And Kate cares for him, clearly. And I think she's very invested in his journey from kind of this arrogant object of of love and of admiration to this kind of abject, broken, I mean, literally by the end, broken thing mm-hmm. where he comes to realise how much of an object he really is, um, which is devastating, but also quite beautiful in a way, especially, I won't spoil the ending, but please read it. Um, Moomin, in contrast, He's always his own person, isn't he? Mm. I think he's always... He learns the lessons, but it's his lesson to learn, not yours. If you learn it, you've learned it through him. Whereas I think Kate is giving you the lesson through this inanimate object. I feel that she's telling the story of Edward, but there is no moral Mm. pointed, which is a very, very difficult thing to do, Mm. I think, for adults writing for children. Mm. A lot of a lot of authors writing for children, whether they want to or not, do point a moral. Mm. And whether that moral is something as innocuous as be nice to people, you know, because if you're not nice to people, bad things will happen. Or, which is like kind of a worldview that a lot of us, a lot of, I'm not, I'm, a lot of people hold that. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. But I think with both Tommy Johnson and Kate De Camillo, the idea is, it's it is very much an on the surface story, with a lot going on underneath yeah, it, yeah. and and like you say, you can pick out that moral, but I think it's a bit clearer in uh, the miraculous journey yeah. of Edward Tulane because um, there is a character at the beginning which is Adeline's grandmother, yes, yeah, yeah. who I think is she's a witch. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's a wonderful t- character, actually. She's totally a witch, but not in a bad way. But she says to uh, Edward Tulane, or she tells a story when Edward Tulane is in the room. Oh, sorry, uh, yeah, turned into the um, war- was it a warthog or something. Yeah, like that? a or princess a who's yeah. turned into a warthog yeah. because she's too vain and yeah. just thinks that. 
not vanity in like you know how she looks, but she has got a far too good opinion of herself. Yeah, she only loves herself. She, I think the key mm. is she doesn't love anyone else, isn't it? Yes. And Edward comes to realise that actually he does love. And I think yeah, it's something else that strikes me about both of these stories. They're outsider narratives, aren't they? In the sense that your main character isn't an outsider. Moomin and Edward are very much insiders. They're very much. To coin a very modern phrase, there's a privilege about them. Yeah. But they interact with outsiders. And I love that. You know, Moomin in Moomin Land Midwinter is talking to the night creatures. I always quote this, and I can't remember the quote by heart, but there's a point where she says, the creatures that don't belong in the summer, they're a bit too shy, they're a bit too rum, but the night, when the night comes, that's when they come out. And that, I mean, as a kid, I was always a night creature. So that resonated with me. I was the winter creature. But, you know, I think Kate Miller does something similar with that because the people that Edward Tillet meets are on the fringes, aren't they? Yes. He meets people that aren't in the centre of society. Like Adelaine is very, um, she's, you know, a very normal child, a very well-to-do child, but the people mm. he meets belong on the fringes of society. And he has to reconsider his place and reconsider the world as a whole. Yeah. I think Moomin's forced to do that too. Moomin is forced to do that as well, reconsider the configuration of the world. I, I agree with you. And I, I think also kind of learning from people who don't really care about him. Mm. Like someone like Tutiki, she's like, well, I'm busy. I'm mm. going up about my own business. I'm setting up my own home and, you know, come along if you want to, but I'm not going to pander yeah. to you. And um, a lot of the characters that, um, that Edward Tulane meets, some of them love him and want the best for him. So there's there's the uh, hobo. Yes. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, and his dog, Lucy. Luce- yeah, yeah. yeah, Lucy the dog. Yeah, and there, you know, Lucy, he, Lucy the dog finds him first. Yeah, because she picks him up and is playing with him in her teeth. And Edward's like, "How very dare you know? What do you, who do you think I am? I am a fancy pants China rabbit. Do take your filthy British teeth off." And then he me. has to the indignity of wearing a dress and becomes uh, a, a girl rabbit, which is which also I think is a really interesting thing. The kind of he changes gender several times. Like yes. His identity is always Edward. But he goes from male to female to male to female, which is a really, for a kid's book, I mm. think is a really interesting thing to play with. It is. And, and that kind of, the idea that he, he knows he's a person, yeah. well, he knows he's a China rabbit, but he, he has his own persona. Yes, yes. But there's a lot of identities yeah. that are put onto yeah. him, which he feels very strongly yeah. about. Yeah, and the dress doesn't make him anything but Edward. The trousers doesn't make him anything but Edward. He's, he is Edward. His identity is not dictated by the appearance he takes. I find that a really interesting message for a children's book. Yeah, I, I think this is where... I mean, Kate DiCamillo is a very prolific writer. Mm. She's been the equivalent of Children's Laureate mm. in, in the US. Um, she's... I think she's... Fabulous, yeah. fabulous writer. I wish she was better known here. This is my first book by her, and I think I will read everything she's written because it is gorgeous. It, it really is. is, yeah. But she she has confidence, I think, mm. to do some things that, in a quite subtle way, that um, I think, in the current climate in the US, um, writers might feel a little bit tentative mm. about doing, and I think she's very clever about yeah. it. So, yeah, that, that message of it doesn't matter what my outside looks like, my inside is still me, is a really clever one. And I think one that children will pick up yeah, on. Yeah, she wields it with a feather, not a sledgehammer, doesn't she? Absolutely yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, the children who need that yeah. message will yeah. hear that message. The children that don't need that message will just say, huh, that's interesting. 
yeah, a, a rabbit, a China rabbit can put on a dress and still be called Edward. Yes. It's fine. Yeah, I, I agree. So you talked about the moomins as being folklore. Mm. Do you think that the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane is a fairy tale? That's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, I think it is, actually. I think fairy tales and folklore are two strands of the same branch, aren't they? I think folklore belongs to nature, maybe, and fairy tale belongs to humans more. Mm. If, you're, if I were to make a distinction, that's probably what I would say. And I think the identity of toys and things that are familiar to us have always mm. been kind of the realm of fairy tale, haven't they? Princesses and toys and the things that surround us that we are readily familiar with, whereas folklore is more like things that are strange to us, nature mm. and things beyond nature. Yeah, I think it is a fairy tale, absolutely. I think he is a fairy tale prince in a way, but he's a fairy tale prince that's taken out of his castle and put out in the world. It's Prince and the Pauper kind of. Mm. He is, yeah, actually has parallels of Prince and the Pauper, except there's no there's nobody to swap with him. Yes. He's just on his own. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's there's a very long line of history of, of doll stories mm. and toy stories, toys that come to life or toys that have a life away from the children that own them. And I think that this is in, in that realm. But because we don't see Edward taking on life, he isn't able, yeah. uh, until the very end, he, doesn't, he isn't able to move himself. He isn't able to actually affect his own environment. He can only react with the environment that he's put in. Yeah. Uh, I think, again, I think that's just so clever because yeah, a lot of less accomplished writers you can sort of see the, the sort of him becoming like the the gingerbread man and and coming to life and going off and doing his own thing but but that kind of what is alive what isn't alive what is sentient what isn't sentient is so much more of a, a really um I can't think of the word. It's it's all right. I will edit this bit out, and I sound <laughs> so much cleverer when I've edited it. It's it's a much more delicate yes, yes. narrative and, and a delicate way of yeah. dealing with narrative. Because um, sentience is not the same thing as agency. It's not the same thing as action, is it? They're yeah. all on, they're on on a continuum, but not necessarily mm. in the same place. Yeah, I think mm. so. Yeah. Um, Okay, do we have any questions from, does anyone have anything they want to ask? Otherwise, you know I'm going to ask you all which moomin you are. Um, go on, Farah. I need a spoiler. The Kate de Miller is way too upsetting for me, unless you tell me it ends okay. It ends beautifully. It does. It, Not yeah. beautifully, does it end okay? It ends okay. okay. It ends okay. Yeah, so for what the question that Farah was asking there is, is, is it going to be too upsetting at the end if it doesn't end okay? Yes, it does. Yeah. It does end okay. It ends in a, I would say, in a really satisfying mm -hmm. manner. Yeah, I agree. It's not an easy, an easy ending, but it is a satisfying ending. You know what it reminded me of? I don't know if you've ever read the original book of Peter Pan. Yes. Um, it really reminded me of that because in Peter Pan, the conclusion is that he doesn't get to keep Wendy. Wendy gets to go back to her original life, but he gets a continuum. So Wendy's daughter, Wendy's granddaughter, Wendy's great-granddaughter, he will always have a Wendy in some form. It's a little bit like that, I think, mm. isn't it? Something on that. It's a, a beautiful thing that isn't necessarily the same. Yeah, except with a much less, um, much less sentimentality. Yeah, 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 I yeah. think, yeah. which is another thing that I think Kate Camillo is very good at. She is not a sentimental yes. writer 
um, and, and which is why, one of the reasons why I love her work so much. Do we have any other questions? Yes, Kit. I'm really struck by what you had to say about the, the continuum between uh, you know, agency, identity. To what degree do you think that's reflecting, that the, those themes within the book are reflecting the experience, especially of childhood, where so much of, of, of your life as a child is actually completely out of your control, yeah. and yet you are yeah. forging an identity? Yeah. So Kate's asking a question about identity and agency and, and the extent to which... Uh, children might have one but not the other. Am I summarising that? That's okay. Fair, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a what, really what interesting think? question. Yeah, because the thing with children is agency is questionable in children, isn't it? Like children absolutely have sentience and absolutely have intention, but agency is kind of curtailed by what they're allowed to do, what mm. parents allow them to do, and that may vary widely in families and widely in societies. It's a really deeply interesting question. Something that I find interesting about Moomin is that knowing what I know about Finland is that Finnish children, at least at the time when Toby Jansen was writing, had what we may perceive as more agency mm. than British children in the sense that they were trusted to go out into the outdoors and they were trusted to go out into the wild and there's this really terrifying cautionary video in Finnish TV, which is stop motion about... Um, so in Finland, you've got shoes spikes on them called Janaskalit, which is to keep you on the ice. And it's this teddy bear that goes out of the ice without them and it sinks into the water and it drowns and it's shit scary. But the idea is that a child will watch that and go, I know what not to do. There's no kind of sense that a child won't know what the message of that is. So the idea is that you address the danger, the child knows the danger, the child will be safe. Which is really struck me as a child of the 80s when we had Charlie Says kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you know don't go off with strangers and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a really good point. And um, the agency that... Because Edgar doesn't have agency, does he? He has sentience. Mm. He has no agency whatsoever. And that is possibly reflective of the time. And also, I mean, from, if you decide to have kind of a personal anecdote for a second, I'm 50 years older than my baby sister. And I feel like as a child of the 80s, I have way more agency than my sister does now, which is interesting in the world that we live in. My sister has not had the opportunity to do half of the stuff that I did as a child, and I did not have the agency to do half the stuff that my mother did as a child. So it seems like agency is diminishing with each generation. It's interesting that Moomin Troll's agency is far greater than Edward's. And I don't yes. think that's accidental. No, I agree with you. Um, there, there have been, quite recently... I'm going to say, again, because I'm really old, I mean, like five years ago, there was a court case where a mother in Maryland, I believe, was taken to court for allowing her child to walk to school by themselves. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. And, I mean, you know, that... How many of us walked to school by ourselves as children? Quite young, I mean, when I was eight, I was taking my sisters to school with me. My sisters were seven and six. So, you know, and that was normal. We, yeah. would, we would meet up with our friends. I would argue as well that the world is no safer now than it was then. And my mum's always said this, we just know more now. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yes, Farah. I'm so sorry, but this isn't true. Remember the okay. case, she was letting her child walk along the highway. Oh, oh sorry. That's a different story. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, because it's traffic that's mm. become a big danger. Yeah. Was the, the black woman, of course she was black, mm. working in a hairdresser, couldn't get childcare and let her child, child play in the park yes. that she could see through the window. Yeah. Wow. 
And that, I think, is more... That's actually more shocking. That, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, that is, that is true. But that is a much more... Yeah, yeah you're correct about, about that. Right, yeah. so, yeah, Farah corrected me. The, the story about the, the mother in Maryland was... was um, her child was walking along a highway without a pavement... who could see her child from out of the window of the hairdressers playing in a public park and she she also got prosecuted. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's probably significant that she is a black woman. I think Farah's absolutely right yes, about that. Totally. Mm. So yeah, I think I think that, that there's two things that have changed. Number yeah. one is the amount of traffic. Yeah. When I was a child growing up in the 1970s, you know, because of the world I grew up in, dads went to work in their car in the cars. Mm. So there were no cars on the estate I yeah. grew up in. You yeah, could yeah. play in the street because, yeah. and to the extent I actually got knocked off my bike by a car because I was playing on my bike and weaving around on the road and I didn't expect a yeah. car to come and got knocked off my bike. And my mum, of course, being a parent of the 70s, and also being my mum, said, well, that's your fault, isn't it? <laughs> that sounds familiar. As I came home with my face yeah. bleeding. But you're right, we didn't, that wasn't a hazard that we expected no. as children, was it? Because there just wasn't the density of traffic. And I suppose actually, yeah, you maybe kind of reflect on that because, you know, obviously I, I came across as a quite kind of critical of modern parenting. It is a different world that we live in. It yes, is. we know more. Sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes that isn't a good thing. But yeah, we live in a density of traffic. We live in also we live in a world where children don't get to go outside because the facilities aren't there. I mean, when you think about when I was a kid, we just went and played football in the park. You can't do that. You have to pay for that now. Yeah, you can't just go and hang around in the park, especially if you're a child of colour. My God, you get the police call on you for doing something like that. When I was a kid, you could just hang around the estate, yes. jump on abandoned cars. You can't do that anymore because. And I don't think there's a, there's a kind of pathological criminalisation of children sometimes, particularly oh, I agree. poor or children of colour that is a, yeah. an issue. And, of, of course, nowadays there's a lot of no-ball game signs. Mm, yeah, which yeah. There, yeah. I mean, there were no-ball game signs in some places when I was a child. They were pretty right much everywhere. Yeah, but no one paid no. attention to them, really, yeah. apart from the busybodies. Go on, go on, Farah. You're underestimating the impact of smaller families. That's yeah, true. Correct. I'm an only child, mm. although like you, I have a very much younger sister. But the key thing, I had nobody to play with because mm. on my road, yeah. until I was 10, I was the only child. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's a more and more common yeah. experience. Yes. Whereas my grandparents, my grandmother was one of five, mm. there were six next door. Yeah. Kids were safer simply because they hunted in packs. You're right. That's very yeah. true. We <laughs> hunted in packs is a wonderful phrase. Yeah, my, along my road, my best friend lived over the road. Yeah. There was another friend who lived down the road a little bit. There were kids next door. There were kids next door, but one, and we it was totally normal. Yeah. You just knocked on a friend's door yeah. and said, "Are you Let's coming out, out to play?" I wonder how much of that is to do with the way the cities are built as well, because, I mean, so my granddad, for context, my granddad was one of 20. Whoa. He was from a Romany Gypsy Irish family, so, yeah, and one of 20. My mother was one of six. I was one of two. I have 17 cousins, so, yeah. 
But I also grew up on a housing estate. And the kind of atmosphere of a housing estate is a little bit like a massive family, or was in the 80s. Mm. So you could just go, oh, I'm going to go and knock on so-and-so's door and we can play out or invite so-and-so around and you could do that in that time. And that sense of community, I think, is fragmented as well. So you're absolutely right about the nuclear families, but even the extended families that we used to have yes. fragmented over time as well. Yeah, I think that, and in particular, I think a housing policy... Um, I'm going to go all political now, I'm sorry. But the way that housing policy has worked and the changes in particular in council housing, mm. where it's very unusual now for, for housing, council houses to be passed on yes. in families, which it was in the past. So you would quite easily get families where their auntie lived down the road and their, their grandma lived around the corner and their cousins were everywhere. I mean, where, where my husband, where my husband grew up, it was very much mm. like that, and everyone was related to everybody. Yeah. Um, but now that the housing housing policy has fractured, and a lot of that was to do with sale of council houses. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. so people get priced out of areas that they traditionally grew up in. Thank you, Thatcher. Thanks, Thatch. Yeah, it was absolutely the case that we don't have those kind of same cohesive relationships but also of course it was much more difficult for women to work mm. in the 70s because there was no child care yeah. unless you had family nearby and so yeah there was there was a lot of people that I grew up with where there was a one income family yeah. simply because there was no uh, there was nowhere else for do you think that that's interesting in, in the context of these books because in the Moomin of course in the Moomin universe Moomin's family is a thing but Moomin's extended family is just a, a given isn't it yeah like, you know, you've got Stuckin and you've got Little Mai and you've got Mimble and you've got all of these characters that live in the same world that are implicitly family. They're found family. They are found They're family, not blood yeah. family. They're community. Yes. They, they, they have the closeness of family. Like, you know, yeah. you'll read a Moomin book and Little Mai will be there just staying with Moomin's because that's the kind of person, that, the kind of relationship they have. Or a Philly jump will have turned up from across the valley and she'll be staying with Moomin's and that's how it is. And what's interesting, I think, about Edward Tulane is that He's always in kind of isolation, isn't he? The yeah. families that he's in are always in silos. That, you know, he's, and that might be a sign effect of the fact that he's in marginalised families. Yeah. But there's no greater network, is there? There's no support network for him. No. He's on his own. Mm. And the family around him is on his own. And I think that, that is not a coincidence. I agree. I, I think that um, a lot of it is about the, the fact that these are marginalised people, but also the fact that Edward has no expectation. Mm. Of, I mean, because his his expectation is, I will be adored, mm. and I will always be with Ab Abeline, and she will always love me, and that kind of horrible shock of when Abeline goes away or when he's lost, that there there is no other, uh, there is no other caretaker yeah. that is assumed to be the caretaker. Wendy, you had your hand up. I was wondering, you were talking about taking your sisters to school, and that was something that I I had brothers not sisters, but still. Um, when I was doing Woodcroft folk, what I found was children had never made their own sandwiches. Yes. Um, it was a great delight when I said, you're going to make a sandwich for yourself, what would you like on it? Yeah. yeah. And children were... So do you think that as the smaller families have happened, as the, the, co the focus has changed to raising one child mm. at a time, yeah. that you've lost that... 
Think of the famous five who were sent off, you know, mm, to, yeah. to do whatever for wild swimming and that. They were presumed to be okay. So children, they yeah, there was an assumption of competence yeah. in children that I think has been lost. I think that children stay children a lot longer than they did. And the, the example I always give is that when I was going to look around universities when I was 17, my parents would give me 20 quid and point me in the direction of a station. Yeah. And there, there was no assumption that my, my mum and dad never dreamed of coming and looking around to university with me. Same. All my, my friends who are my age, who now actually have children who graduated from university because I'm really old, but all my friends have been, have dragged their children around the country um, and taken time off work. That was the other thing. My mum and dad would never dream of taking time no. off work to, to go and do something like that with me. And not my younger sisters too. So that kind of assumption of children needing to have parenting for longer. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's a big change. And I think the biggest change for that is actually children staying young people staying at school longer yeah. and that becoming a far more common thing of young people staying at school until they're 18 rather than the, when I was at school the majority of people left school at 16. Well, kind of an anecdote about this in the sense that so I grew up in the, I grew up in the 80s so I was kind of the tail end of the latchkey kid generation and I was raised by a single mother for most of that and um, so my mum did three jobs I had a twin brother my twin brother and I were largely left to look after ourselves after a certain age out of necessity, not out of choice. So we learned to, you know, not use the oven or anything, but we could make sandwiches. We could do certain things mm. for ourselves. There was a degree of independence. And my husband, who is of the same generation as me, was raised by a middle-class Italian family. Obviously, there is a cultural difference there as well, because Italians tend to keep their children closer. But the middle, I think the class aspect of it is there too, because when I met him, he couldn't cook. He couldn't make a sandwich, he couldn't... And the same with his sister, it wasn't a gender issue either, you know, just to make that clear. It wasn't an issue of the male child being cold. I don't know how much culture or how much class um, contributes to this, but he couldn't do anything as mm. I could do. Um, we are of the same generation. We are just of different classes and different... I mean, my family are gypsy, Irish background, working class. He's Italian middle class, so there's a lot of differences there. But I just find it interesting that we grew up at the exact same time. I grew up on a council state, he grew up in an old house. How much of that contributes? How much of my how much of it was a necessity? My yeah. mum you know, my mum took me to work during the school holidays because she couldn't take the time off. So we used to play around in a demolition yard because that's where she worked. And we used to go digging in the sticks. So yeah, it's I wonder if just the configuration of, you know, I, I do believe that class divide is widening in the modern era. That's something I'm very firmly believing in, and that, you know, we like to think the class is a thing in the past, I don't think it is. No, I agree. Thank you so much. Laura, where can listeners find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Laura N. Mauro, or you can find me at lauramauro.com. Thank you for listening to episode 29 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. You can subscribe at most of your favourite podcast places or download from Podbean. Please do rate and review if you can, as it helps to satisfy my vanity. 
Thanks to Steve Vapertrails for production assistance and Jack Sadler-Johnson for the use of his beautiful track, Bliss. Until next time, bye! Thank <laughs> you.